0: So today we're reading first from Isaiah chapter 36, uh, verses 1 to 37, verse 7, and then secondly chapter 37, verses 33 to 38. So Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, Isn't he the one whose high places and altars King Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephavaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. So I'll now be reading from chapter 37, verses 33 to 38. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramalek and Shar- Sharazah killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king.
1: Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, you have promised that your word would revive the soul and make wise the simple. And so, Lord, we ask that it might do... All of those things in the lives of all of us here tonight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a great story. Well worth reading. Well done, Sophie, especially uh, with some really tricky names. You think you've got right to the end and then it chucks a whole lot of tough names in the last couple of verses. But it's well worth reading. It's a, a fantastic story. It's got it all. It's got a superpower led by an evil king on a mission of plunder and conquest moving through a land with ease, no one to oppose them, no one strong enough to fight them. And then there's the underdog. There's this tiny, defiant nation of Judah with their one last stronghold, the city of Jerusalem, a city under siege, holding true to their convictions, holding true to their faith that that their God would deliver them and would rescue them, even though none of the other gods in any of the other lands have ever been able to stand against Assyria. And this tiny nation is led by a king, a good king, King Hezekiah. At last, God's people have a king who trusts in God and does not trust in idols of wood or of stone. It's a brilliant story. It's a a smash hit movie or TV series just kind of waiting to happen. I get frustrated watching television these days with all the nonsense that's on it when there's much better stories that they could be telling uh, from the Bible. Uh, But there's just one thing that's missing from this story and no it's not the kind of romantic subplot the studio would insist gets shoehorned in at the last minute it's the fact that there's no action there's no battle there's no climax it ends in a great victory for God right at the end of chapter 37 uh, God's striking down the Assyrian army not even Sennacherib escapes but not an arrow is fired not a sword is drawn It is a war that is fought exclusively with words. And the thing that they're fighting over is repeated six or seven times. First of all, it's repeated in chapter 36, verse 4. What are you basing your confidence on? Uh, What are you relying upon? Uh, What are you depending on? Uh, Whose words will you believe? Who will you trust? Is the big question of Isaiah 36 and 37. Who will God's people trust? Will this last remnant of God's people trust in the honeyed words of Sennacherib's servant? Or will they trust in God's promised deliverance? That's the question that comes up again and again in these chapters. And so far, the answers that God's people have given to that question have always been disappointing. So far, ever since the beginning of the book of Isaiah, we've been here now for for six weeks, but so far, every time that question of who will you trust has been put to God's people, they've failed. They've trusted in themselves. They've trusted in their own religious hypocrisy. They've trusted in their foreign military alliances. They've even trusted that if they just kind of stick their heads in the sand, their problems will all go away. They've trusted in everything else except God. And yet here now, when all resources have been taken away, all means of retreat cut off, when they have nothing left, the enemy is at the very gates. who will they trust in once again they 've asked been asked this question, and we have been anticipating this moment for a long time now. God promised that he would deliver Jerusalem and even transform Jerusalem as far back as Isaiah 1. Assyria has been on the march since Isaiah 5. A good king for God's people has been promised since Isaiah 7. And so now the moment is finally here. Everything that we've read so far has led up to this very point now. And the question is, who will God's people trust? And yet even as we hear that question, There's something strangely familiar about this story, Uh, something that I think we can all identify with, of feeling like the underdog, of feeling like we are under siege in our lives, uh, surrounded by by pressure from the world around us, from friends and family and from uh, our universities and from our workplaces, everyone around us speaking words, speaking words that feel powerful words that feel more powerful than God's words, asking us in all sorts of different ways, who am I trusting? Who am I relying on for confidence and for security, for comfort and for strength? Who are we depending on for our futures and our happiness? Is it God or is it something else? an alternative God who promises us an alternative salvation. Something other than the promise of salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And I wonder if you, like me, feel like you're engaged in your own war of words. And suddenly Sennacherib's field commander isn't just asking Judah, who are you relying on? He's also asking us. And so I want to talk about a few things today. I want to talk about the war of words that Hezekiah finds himself in. It comes in two parts. One part is in chapter 36, the other is in chapter 37. And at the end of each of those, I also want to talk a little bit about the war of words that we find ourselves fighting. So let's start with the first one then, the first round of this war of words. Come with me to Isaiah 36. You'll notice straight away that we've moved from A prophecy to prose. We've moved from kind of the poetic prophecy of much of Isaiah to to narrative, to we've dropped back into history. And I've got to be honest with you, no one could be more happy about that than me. Uh, Isaiah is a wonderful book, but it's been hard work, hasn't it, Uh, to understand what Isaiah has been saying to us, even if it's been worth it every time. And this part of Isaiah, actually, chapter 36, and 37 that we're doing this week, and 38 and 39 that we'll look at next week, this little section, it actually forms the hinge between the two halves of the book of Isaiah. It's also, by the way, it's word for word what you'll read in 2 Kings chapters 18 to 20. Uh, And so, you know, you might not have realised it, but tonight you actually got two Bible readings for the price of one. One of the services that we just like to provide for you here at St Matthews. But it's also because we're in history, there are other accounts of this story as well. And so if you ever find yourself in London, you can go to the British Museum and you can find a a tiny little thing called the Taylor Prism. It's only about that big. Uh, And it has Sennacherib's account of these events. So he talks about uh, conquering the, the cities of Judah and laying siege to Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that almost perfectly beat for beat, Uh, It's the same story that's being told, just from a a very different perspective. And seeing it's Sennacheribs, you can also imagine that it leaves out the last little bit about what happens between him and his sons. But anyway, back to the beginning of the story. The first three verses of 36 paint a very grim picture for this last stronghold of God's people. (laughs) Sennacherib, king of Assyria, has camped his colossal army at Lachish, about 12 kilometers away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem their last line of defense. Lachish is Jerusalem's freemantle. Assyria has conquered and destroyed all of the nations to the north of Jerusalem, including Aram, including Israel, the 10 northern tribes of God's people. They were conquered, they were carted off into exile back in 722 BC. Assyria has also defeated all of the nations to the south of Jerusalem, especially the other superpower of the day, the kingdom of Egypt. But now in 701 BC, Assyria has also captured every fortified town in Judah. All that is left is Jerusalem. And now Sennacherib means to add her to his collection. And so Assyria has Jerusalem under siege. Hezekiah is shut up like a bird in a cage, to use Sennacherib's own words. And this battle begins with a little bit of psychological warfare. He sends his field commander, his Rab shaka in some translations, to meet with the high officials of King Hezekiah. And this meeting takes place in an aqueduct just outside the walls of Jerusalem. It's a sign of strength. Assyria controls Jerusalem's water supply. This will not be a long siege. But it's also a hint because actually another meeting took place in this very location earlier in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Back in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah met with King Ahaz, actually the father of King Hezekiah. And in that meeting, the prophet Isaiah pleaded with, with Ahaz and said, don't trust Assyria, trust God. And now here is the field commander of the king of Assyria saying to King Hezekiah, Don't trust God, trust the king of Assyria. He encourages the exact opposite. And the message is simple, it's over, you've lost. You don't have a chance, surrender to Assyria. Before things get worse, before things get really bad, before things get verse 12 bad. Siege warfare was a very nasty business. Because, says the field commander, there's nothing left for you to rely on. All this talk, all these things that you're saying, it's just empty, powerless words in verse 5. Verse 6, trust in Egypt. Lean on that staff, and you'll just get splinters. Verse 7, trust in the Lord. All of his places of worship are gone. Verses 8 and 9, trust in your own strength. Trust in your own military. Well, even if I gave you the horses, you couldn't fight against me. Even if I gave you the very weapons, you couldn't put up a fight. And then perhaps most powerful of all, in verse 10, he says, and trust in God? Well, God's the reason why we're here. God invited us to come. God invited us to come and to destroy you. And what's most frightening about that is we actually know that to be true. We know that ever since chapter 5, God has summoned the Assyrians to punish his people for their sin. Assyria is the rod of the Lord's anger, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Assyria is the axe that threatens to chop down the unfruitful vineyard. This is the long-promised judgment of God because of the sin of his people. So these are powerful arguments for surrender. It's a powerful stick that the king of Assyria wields. But there's also a carrot the most powerful arguments always involve a stick and a carrot and so the carrot comes in verses 13 to 20 and it's aimed not at King Hezekiah's officials who seem to be standing strong, the carrot is aimed squarely at the ordinary people of Jerusalem which is why he's speaking in Hebrew so that they might hear, so that they might understand rather than in Aramaic which the people of Jerusalem would not have understood and the carrot is this, it's Don't listen to Hezekiah in verse 16 and don't listen to Hezekiah's God in verse 18. They cannot deliver you, they cannot save you, but the king of Assyria can. He can save you, he can deliver you and he can even give you a a new prosperity. He can lead you out of this land and to a a new land. A a land flowing with grain and, and with new wine. Not exactly a land flowing with milk and honey But it's words that are eerily reminiscent of the promises that God had made to his people back in the Exodus. And what the king of Assyria is offering is to be their God. If they trust him, if they listen to him, if they throw open the gates of their city and throw open the gates of their hearts, then he will deliver them. He won't destroy them. In fact, he will will lead them into a, a new salvation. Essentially, Sennacherib is offering exactly what God has been offering to the people for chapter after chapter after chapter. For so long, God has been saying to his people, listen to me, trust me, obey me, and I will deliver you. And I will prosper you once more. And now the king of Assyria is saying the same thing. Listen to me. Trust me, obey me, and I will deliver you, I won't destroy you, and I'll even prosper you. And you can almost imagine if this really was a movie, you'd almost imagine at this point the camera it wouldn't be on the field commander as he speaks. It had cut away to the soldiers on the wall, to the, to the people in the streets, tired and terrified, dirty and desperate, as they furtively glance to one another, as they nervously consider the, the, the persuasive arguments of the field commander, the carrot and the stick that he's often. Which God will they trust in? Whose words are more powerful? Who really can deliver them from this terrible situation that they're in? Whose salvation should they choose? Will they continue to trust in God? Or will they surrender to the king of Assyria? And here's the thing. So often it feels like the same choice is in front of us. God has made to us his promise of salvation. His promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. That when we come to the cross of Jesus... We will receive the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of a life forever with him. But he is not the only one who offers us salvation. God is not the only God who vies for our worship. He is not the only one who speaks to us with persuasive words and calls on us to trust him, to listen to him, to obey him. There are other gods too, aren't there, in our world who ask the same thing. Alternative gods that offer us an alternative salvation. The career that offers to save us from insecurity. The relationship that offers to save us from loneliness. The achievement that offers to save us from insignificance. The purpose that offers to save us from meaninglessness. The wealth that offers to save us from worry. The pleasure that offers to save us from missing out. They all make such persuasive arguments. They all have such tempting carrots and terrifying sticks. And all of them have but one price that we throw open the gates of our lives and the gates of our hearts to them and to them alone, that we worship them and, and them alone, that we sacrifice ourselves on their altars and their altars alone and that we turn our back on the one true God and the son he sent to die for us and we join with the rest of the world in rejecting him. And of course, all they promise are lies. They can never provide what they offer. They deliver nothing other than a new slavery to a harsh master. But like all lies, they are lies that are given great power when we believe them. And so what lays siege to your heart? What calls out to you in a language that you understand all too well and speaks to you powerfully and persuasively, whose words seem powerful to you and tempts you to surrender? And do you even know what they are in your life? How do you even find out what they are? But let me say to you, we can find these temptations, we can find these idols of our hearts in the extremes of our emotions. When we have the kind of emotional responses or, or emotional reactions to things that we think, how, how did that happen? I'm, I'm older than that now, I don't have those sorts of reactions anymore. You know, when we, when we have the, the extreme emotional response to something, For you see, it's when the idols of our heart, it's when they're threatened or or when they're taken away or when they're at risk or when we feel like we might miss out on them, that's when we respond with our extreme emotions. Not just with ordinary anger, but with extreme rage. Not just with ordinary fear, but absolute terror. Not just ordinary sadness, but a deep and dark depression. It's at the extremes of our emotions that we actually find out what our heart really loves, what our heart truly desires. And so when you do have those moments, when you do have those, those irrational moments that you can't even understand, that, that you think, oh, you know, why do I still do, react like this? Uh, they're worth dwelling on. They're worth reflecting on. What is it about my heart that means this thing has, has so rattled and upset me? It's at the extremes of our emotions that we find the idols of our heart that speak to us so persuasively. But even when you find them, even when you find these things that tempt us, it's only half the battle. Because you see, we all served these masters once upon a time and some of us serve them still. And the gods of this world, they demand a high price for the salvation that they offer. They demand sacrifice. They demand our time and our energy and our allegiance. They demand that we do things that we know to be wrong. They demand that we give ourselves to them completely. They are savage gods and hard masters, just like Assyria was. And that makes it hard to turn to Jesus, doesn't it? even when we know that he is right, even when we know that that what he offers is much better, it's still hard to turn to Jesus because we think that Jesus will be like them. We think that Jesus will make the same demands. We think that Jesus too will ask us to pay for our salvation. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is the only master who does not ask us to pay for our salvation because Jesus is the only master who has paid for our salvation and so he, he will never demand that we pay for it. Jesus has paid. Jesus has made the sacrifice. Jesus has earned it and now it comes to us as a gift, a gift of his mercy and his grace and so Jesus is the only master who can ever say, come to me all of you who are weary and burdened for I will give you rest. I will give you rest from trying to earn your salvation, I'll give you rest from trying to be worthy of it. I'll give you rest from having to work for your significance and your security and for your standing in this world. I'll give you rest from all of those things. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the only master we can trust ourselves to. Even when it's hard because he's the only master who isn't like the harsh masters of our world. But let's come back to our story. Come back to the second round of our war of words in chapter 37. How does Hezekiah respond to this terrible situation? Well, he doesn't try and fight back with weapons. He doesn't surrender to the king of Assyria. Instead, his response really can be summed up with one word trust. Hezekiah trusts God. Hezekiah trusts that God will deliver him, that he will save Jerusalem. And we know that he trusts God to do this because it's to God that he goes. It's to God in prayer that he goes. And who you go to when you're in trouble, well, that, that does say a lot about who you trust. I saw this a couple of weeks ago, actually. I was. Down at Kings Park with the kids, we were were out there and um, Archie, my number three, he was climbing up one of the statues and you could see his little brain ticking over. He got to the top and realised he was too high up to get himself back down and you could see him looking around trying to work out how he could get down uh, and he he worked out he was stuck. And so what did he do? He called for Daddy. Daddy, come and get me. And so I went there and I lifted him off and I put him down and then he ran around and climbed back up again because that's what you do when you fall. But that's what you do when you're in trouble. You call out to the one whom you trust. And who does Hezekiah call out to? He calls out to God. He calls out to God to save him. And his prayer is in verses 16 to 20 of Isaiah 37. And it's a wonderful prayer. It's a magnificent prayer. Verse 16, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. It's a wonderful prayer that Hezekiah prays. It is so bold and yet it is so humble. Hezekiah doesn't say, Lord, save us because we're a wonderful people, because they're not a wonderful people. Hezekiah doesn't say, save us, Lord, because we've trusted in you, because God's people have not trusted in God. Hezekiah doesn't say, Lord, save us because we are righteous. Save us because we are good. Because God's people aren't righteous and they aren't good. Instead, Hezekiah prays, Lord, save us because you are righteous. Save us because you are good. Save us because you've been insulted. Your glory has been called into question. Save us so that everyone might know that you are the only God, the living God, and that all the other gods of the nations that have been defeated by Assyria, they are just wood and stone. But you live, and you speak, and you save. Hezekiah trusts God, and so he cries out to God for help. But not imagining that he has any way of... of any, 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 anything that he deserves from God, but trusting only in God. And it's a beautiful prayer. And God hears it. And God answers it in verse 21. Verse 21. Then Isaiah son of Amos sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria... This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. See, God will punish Assyria for what they have done. It will be for God's glory in verse 24. It will be because it's what God planned to do long ago in verse 26. It will be because Assyria has been proud and arrogant and raged against God in verses 28 and 29. And so God will deliver Jerusalem and will deliver Hezekiah. But it's also for another reason. Back in verse 21, it's because Hezekiah prayed. It's because Hezekiah trusted God enough to pray. And the Lord heard his prayer and now answers it. God says, because you asked, I have answered. Because you prayed, I'm now going to step into history and change it. Because you trusted in me, I will save you. It's an incredible moment of prayer. It's an incredible moment of God responding to Hezekiah and to his trusts, And God does indeed deliver Hezekiah and Judah. Sennacherib's army is routed by an angel of the Lord. 185,000 are slain in a single night. And Sennacherib himself flees for home, his tail between his legs, gone to whimper to the impotent godlings that he worships where he is slain by two of his sons because Hezekiah prayed. And thus ends the war of words. To God has gone the great victory by his word. In fact, there's a real contrast here. At the beginning of 36, Assyria was saying, all you have to rely on, Jerusalem, is these empty words. And yet at the end of 37, whose words are empty? Assyria, weak. powerless. And whose words are powerful? Hezekiah's words. Because Hezekiah prayed and God listened. And even more so, God's words are powerful. Because he spoke and the Assyrians were struck down by the power of his word and not even Sennacherib escaped. Such is the power of the word of God. And so let's talk about our war of words again. There certainly are times in life where we feel under siege as Christians, aren't there? There certainly are times where we feel like we're under attack. Powerful words are spoken to us and against us. A war of words conducted to draw us away from Christ. Words are spoken that feel powerful. Powerful sound, persuasive, compelling carrots and and scary sticks and there are times in our lives where God's Word feels weak in comparison. And like we talked about before, in this Word it's easy to surrender, isn't it? It's easy to throw open the gates of our own hearts to these other words, these alternative gods and their alternative salvations. But there is another danger, I think, for us uh, there is, a, a, I think, another danger to imagine that we are living in a world like Isaiah 36 and 37, uh, to imagine that we are under siege and to kind of sink almost into that, that siege mentality, to, to withdraw from the world, to see the world out there as as scary and dangerous, something that we need to be protected from. And so it, retreat, retreat into our, our, our Christian communities, our, our churches, uh, to concentrate on building up our own walls, our own defences until they are higher and higher and higher, def- hiding away from all that is out there, putting on and going to, to endless events, surrounding ourselves with Christians and only with other Christians, uh, building up our fortress until we can feel safe in a dangerous world. You know, and occasionally from our Christian castle, we'll, we'll lob Bibles over the parapets and hope that it kind of knocks someone on the head and they might come in as well. There's a real temptation to live a comfortable Christian life in our own protected safe space to withdraw from the world. It's easy to feel like the people of Isaiah 36 and 37 must have felt. But God hears the ridicule that people speak against Him and against His people. God's not ignorant of the opposition that we face. It's just the opposition that Jesus faced. And no servant is greater than his master. But our reality is very different from those terrified townsfolk and those scared soldiers in Jerusalem. Our situation is even very different from King Hezekiah's. Remember, whose word is it who is the most powerful in these chapters? It's God's words. All other words are empty and powerless by comparison. And we aren't Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 36, faithful and trusting but under siege. We're actually Jerusalem at the end of chapter 37, having seen the great victory of God, that he has won by his word. For we have seen the final word of God come into this world and become flesh, become the man Jesus Christ. We have seen him as he spoke powerful words against whom no one could stand. We have seen him against whom even the demons fled when he spoke, who by his word healed sicknesses, cured the blind, even raised the dead. And we have seen him crucified for our sins to bring us forgiveness. And we have seen him whom death could not hold, whom death could not defeat, rise from the dead. And we have seen his gospel message proclaimed to to all the earth uh, for centuries, calling people out from their old gods, their alternative gods and their alternative salvations to live and to worship and serve the one true God and Jesus Christ who has saved us. We've seen people transformed even in our own church Even this year, we've seen people transformed by God's word as they listen to their Saviour Jesus. We aren't under siege in this world. The world is under siege against us. And wherever we go and wherever we proclaim Christ, Christ breaks in. He breaks down the walls, He breaks down the barriers, He conquers the cities. And brings nations under his rule, as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. This is not the day of small things. This is the day of the victory of Jesus Christ by his resurrection from the dead. And so we don't live in Isaiah 36 and 37. Uh, We live in another passage. We live, if you'll forgive me for continuing the martial metaphor, uh, we live in the day of Ephesians 6. The armour of God. Uh, but Ephesians 6 verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the full armour of God. So that when the day of evil comes. You may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything. To stand firm. What's the command? Put on the armour of God. So that you can stand firm. So that you can not surrender and not retreat. So that you can resist the war of words that we are daily engaged in. For we carry with us all the protection that we would ever need. We carry with us truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation. We carry with us the very words and spirit of God. And so we do not need to withdraw from the worlds, we can face the worlds with confidence, with boldness. We can speak the very words of Jesus into people's lives. And those words are powerful. We don't speak our words. They're weak. But we can speak Jesus' words. And we can pray. And when we pray, God will listen. And he will hear. And he will step into history and he will change it because that's what he's promised to do. You see, the same power by which God won the great victory of Isaiah 37 is the same power that rose Jesus to life again is the same power that called you to follow Jesus And it is the same power that is at work even now when we pray and when we speak the gospel news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you have won for us a great victory. Already the enemies are defeated. Their words are empty. Their lies are powerless. Already sin and death and Satan are broken. Already you have saved us. Already you have made us your people. Help us, Lord, to stand firm in Christ, unmoved, untempted, unashamed of the gospel. And Lord, help us not to surrender. Yes, we fight this battle every day. The words around us, they sound so persuasive. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we've doubted the power of your word compared to the, the lies and the empty speech of so many in our world today. But help us not to withdraw into the siege mentality either especially not this Christmas. Help us not to withdraw from our friends and our our family members. They need to hear of the power of your word. They need to hear of Jesus. And there are so many opportunities this time of year. There's never an easier time to talk about Jesus or, or to bring someone to an event. There's never an easier time to speak of Christ than when we celebrate his birth. And so, Lord, let us put on the full armour of God so that we might stand our ground. Give us, Lord, courage and boldness so that we might speak not our words but yours. And when we speak, may people listen. And when we pray, may you listen and may you change people. And this we ask, Lord, not for our glory, not for the glory of our church. This we pray for your glory, so that everyone might know that you are the living God, that you are the merciful God who sent your Son to die for us, so that we might receive the free gift of salvation. Amen.